I have mixed feelings about growing older. The good me understands and accepts the inevitability of the process and embraces each year that arrives as if my entire life has been leading up to this moment. Instead of lamenting the loss of beauty and strength, the positive me enjoys not having the same work pressures and expectations and revels in accumulated wisdom. It cares less about being judged or criticised. The bad me looks in the mirror and curses. She looks at the back of her once pretty hands and sees brown spots and purple veins, then gets cranky when she can't remember the name of a close friend. Although very male-centric, I love Daniel Klein's book Travels with Epicurious, in which he examines ageing in the context of old people enjoying their lives on a Greek island. Here, friendships and companionship make ageing a joy. Eating and drinking together, talking, laughing, reminiscing. Reading the book, I did sometimes wonder what the old women were doing while the old men were enjoying themselves so much, probably slaving away in the kitchen. However, the conclusion he reaches is hard for me to disagree with. Old age is a privilege to be savoured rather than a disease to be cured or a condition to be denied. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Mary Moody, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Your early career was in journalism. Is it a case that once a journalist, always a journalist? Being a journalist is a little bit different from being an author. The good part of my journalistic training is that I'm very deadline-oriented and apparently, according to the publishers that I talk to, a lot of authors aren't. They just, you know, however long it takes them to write a book, whereas if I know it's due in on the, the 1st of January, I get it there on time. I think also, in journalism, you're taught to write simply and to tell a story in an accessible fashion. So it's not so much about being show-off with words. I have a personal philosophy that if there's a simple word that expresses uh, something, then that's uh, much better than a more complicated or a, a more um, tricky word. And so I think my journalistic training did teach me to tell a story and make it accessible to the reader. When I um, write a memoir such as this, which basically covers my whole life in one sense, it goes back to childhood and then it goes over more recent years and in particular the last seven years, the two years when my husband was diagnosed with cancer and I stopped work to look after him and care for him until he died and then the five years afterwards. Um, so I used my journalistic um, research skills. I went back into all my old notebooks and diaries, then my computers, um, pulled up emails between myself and my husband, for example, when he was sick, and discovered things that I'd completely forgotten about, exchanges of, um, you know, sometimes anger or, or despair that I had wiped from my memory. And so having that training to do that research 
uh, allowed me to put a lot of detail and richness into the manuscript. I suppose having the presence of mind to retain all of that material, whether it's written or whether it's in electronic form. I used to have a great big computer that was, you know, not portable at all. But once laptops came in and I started using them because I travel so much and I can take a little laptop with me. And so I, each time I've updated one of those, you know, every seven or eight years, I've kept the old one because it's got a lot of photographs. They have a lot of photographs on them as well. And to me, it's like um, this wonderful uh, um, treasure house of stored memories and stored information. And there are other things you can do when you're writing memoir too. Sometimes I'll put on music that David and I loved at a certain period of our lives together, um, or cook a meal that I knew that he loved, because those other senses, the sense of smell in particular, um, I mean, I might... um, I, I don't, but I could have smoked a joint. David liked to smoke a bit of marijuana, so um, the smell of marijuana would immediately take me back to a particular time in our lives in the 70s before we had children and when he was working on, on, on films. Um, and so, yes, using all of those resources and, and triggering your senses is a great way of um, getting, once again, getting that richness and colour into a manuscript. Having an interest in gardening and a background in gardening only heightens that sense. Oh yes, gardening well works on so many levels. Of course, I didn't, I didn't have a garden as a child. We grew up in a block of flats, and it was really only when I started having children in um, the early seventies, and I started to read all the information that was coming out in the newspapers and on radio in those days about chemicals in the food chain, because. You know, they used to uh, spray vegetables, um, market gardens uh, with arsenic and all sorts of other incredible chemicals. And I got a real bee in my bonnet about um, not wanting my children to have to be contaminated by all these chemicals. And that's how I actually got into gardening in the first place. So I dragged my um, family from living in inner city in Crow's Nest. Um, up to beautiful Lura in the Blue Mountains where we had three quarters of an acre and I made a little mini farm with chickens and ducks and veggies and fruit trees and it all, in fact I I jokingly say I lowered the tone of the neighbourhood because Lura was quite, and and remains, quite a shishi sort of village and I turned it into Murrumpai Kettle with, you know, lots of kids running around screaming around the place. At one point I even had a goat (laughs) and a sheep in the backyard. (laughs) So, um, and that's how I taught myself to garden. But gardening has made a huge difference in my life in many ways as a therapy. When David was sick and, and after he died, I found one of the best things I could do was just get out, get my hands into the soil, um, and just it makes you it helps you to escape and to forget and to get into another world and and I've subsequently read that um, there are chemicals that are released in the soil when you're turning it over it's like the endorphins you get from you know exercise and that uh, make you feel good that actually make you feel fantastic so it explains it all I mean there's a logical reason for it and so yes it also gardening has opened that window of me being able to take people on botanical tricks um, all over the world. Part of your career has been uh, as a TV presenter for Gardening Australia. Has life been a series of episodes for you or just a series of accidents? <laughs> are, they, are they something that you make happen or do they just occur? 
For me, I'd say my career is pure serendipity. I mean, in the beginning, deliberately went and got a job as a cadet journalist. And in those days, there were no degrees in communications to get into journalism or the media. You had to go and learn on the job. It was like an apprenticeship. And I did my three-year apprenticeship, my cadetship at the Australian Woman's Weekly. And I thought that that would be my career um, as, as a feature writer in magazines. And then when I met my husband, David, we met at Channel 9 and I was working in the publicity department and I had a bit of a fantasy about becoming a TV news reporter. But in 1971, there were no women TV news reporters. So I didn't succeed in getting into that. And because my husband worked as a film and television producer, my career sort of went in that direction and I worked for a few years for TV Week magazine, I worked um, as a publicist for the Australian Film Commission, I, I worked at the Australian Film and Television School and wrote their first handbook and so I really at that point in my life thought that I was going to be a showbiz journalist, that was my career. And then when I, when I did that dramatic move up to Lura and started to get into gardening, I thought I would just be a stay-at-home mum, having that fantasy of semi-self-sufficiency. I mean, I, I literally, I was the full hippy-dippy, cooking on a wood stove, you know. I had another child, a fourth child, which was a home birth, you know. My journalist friends and writing friends would come up to stay in the Blue Mountains for the weekend because everyone loves to come and sit by the roaring log fire and drink red wine and eat lovely, delicious food that's been picked from someone's veggie garden. And someone came up with the idea of me doing a gardening column and I said, well, I can't possibly. I'm not, you know, I'm not a horticulturist, I'm not a botanist. And But I did. I, I went, um, I think, um, Home Journal magazine. I don't think it exists anymore. I started to do a gardening column um, for them. And by serendipity, other publishers saw it and invited me to um, write or edit gardening books and magazines. Over a period of 30 years, I've done more than, I'd say, 45 gardening books and edited four series of gardening magazines. And... Um, so that was, you know, if you'd asked me at 21, um, if I would, you know, if, I, if anyone had suggested to me at 21 that I would be writing books telling people how to make compost, I'd have, you know, thrown up my arms in horror. But that's exactly what happened. That's the nature of gardening in a way. It's a, a accumulated knowledge over a number of years, isn't it? It's not necessarily through study, it's through, through experience. A lot of people think of gardening as a science, but for me, gardening's more about common sense than anything else. And I think that's why my books were always quite successful, was um, I wrote once again in that journalistic, that very accessible um, style, and it was warm and friendly. I was quite happy to admit to my mistakes that I'd made in the early There's days. There's always trial and error there, isn't there? Trial and error, and also made people feel like they could do it too. It was almost, well, if she can do it, and she's not botanically or horticulturally trained, anyone can do it. And so that was the idea. And eventually, after 10 years of doing um, gardening books, the ABC must have picked up on one of my books and came and auditioned me, and I ended up doing the gardening show, which I did uh, when Peter Cundall um, was the king of the garden and did that for 10 wonderful years. It was uh, one of the most interesting, exciting and fun parts of my career. It's really an icon these days, isn't it? Perhaps it was then already. Well, it's been going for 30 years. I don't think there are very many television programs 
Australian programs that have been going for that length of time and even though you know the panel I think there's uh, um, Jane Edmondson from Victoria she's still there she's still she was there when I was there so she's one of the originals but after 10 years of doing that I then reached a point in my life where my children had all grown up and, and, and left to um, pursue their careers and their studies. Um, when you live in the mountains, there aren't universities, and so they have to leave. It's quite actually good. They have to leave home at 18. <laughs> and my mother, Muriel, who'd lived with us for, well, she lived with us for 26 years. Um, she died not long before I turned 50. And suddenly I was in this position where I didn't have anybody, uh, you know, I was had my husband but he was very busy working on his film projects um, nobody was dependent on me anymore and so I took off to France and spent six months living in a French village and changed my writing from um, from being a gardening writer um, to being uh, a writer of memoirs and, and travel adventure stories and two books came out of or that well, actually, period yeah there were the, uh, yes so there was au revoir was the first one running away from home at 50 and that was interesting because the publisher wanted me not to write a travelogue they wanted me to write a story about my life and what it was that had led me to make the decision at 50 to go and live in a french village and I didn't think anyone would be the slightest bit interested. I wrote about my funny family, my, you know, I had a, quite an unusual, well, they'd call it, um, what would they call it these days, um, dysfunctional family childhood. Um, and I wrote about my career and my, my marriage and my children. And I wrote about what it was like to, to suddenly be free of it all and to have this six months of complete hedonistic fun living in a French village. And I really, as I said, didn't think anyone would be all that interested, but it, I think it was the subheading which was running away from home at 50. It's very appealing, isn't it? Oh, the I think idea. it appealed to so many people, men and women, the whole idea of escaping from your life for, for that precious six months. So, and then I did a second book, which was a very difficult and, and quite controversial book because... I wrote about having an affair and I didn't start out. Um, I started out writing the second book. It was going to be a continuation of the first book because in the first book that I was perfectly innocent. I didn't do anything wicked or wild at all. I did a few wild things, you know, dancing around fires in village festivals and things like that. But I, I was very well behaved overall. And halfway through writing the second book I, was when I started to have an affair with a man that I'd met, met in France. and. I just said to the publisher, I don't think I can write this book because my whole world turned upside down. My marriage was under threat and I was in a bit of a, you know, total um, state of confusion. And in the end, well, I had to really write the book because I'd taken the advance and signed the contract. And I wrote a book in which I talked about lots and lots of things that were happening in France but I didn't mention the affair and I sat down and read the book and it it was hollow it didn't have any substance to it it was just a lot of words this in, is what became this last was tango last in, tango in Toulouse yes. and and so what I did was um I took myself away, we were living on a farm at that stage out near Bathurst, I took myself off to a funny little country town called Oberon where there's a lot of trout fishing and I took myself to the big trout motor in for two weeks and I wrote the real story of what had actually happened. 
And then I came back to the farm and my husband, David, read it. And he said, well, I hate this book. I'm never going to like this book, but it's your story and you have a right to tell it. And so we went ahead. I took it to the publisher. Of course, I think they were rubbing their hands together with glee because of the salacious aspect of it. Although there was, I didn't write anything salacious. I just told, talked about falling in love and, and my confusion. The accidental tour guide is, is also about travel. Do you need a reason to travel? I got into travel because working on Gardening Australia, um, an adventure travel company, World Expeditions, identified that a lot of older travellers wanted to know the botanical names of the plants where they were visiting, especially when they were trekking in the Himalayas, because the local guides only knew the local common names. And so a whole bunch of different so-called gardening experts or people with a profile in the gardening world were invited to lead to go with expeditions in parts of the uh, they were called they called them botanical tre- treks in parts of the Himalayas and I got completely hooked I was absolutely hooked after the first one and so that was one thing I did continue to do um, even during that period after I left Gardening Australia so I think I've been taking people now on treks for 26 or 27 years and a lot of those treks have been specifically about going to look at the botany and the, and the flora of a particular region and so that gives my travel a quite narrow focus on one level but so many people love doing those trips. Has it internationalised your attitude to gardening at home? For me, walking through these remote villages in the Himalayas and seeing how simply people live and, and seeing their beautiful little garden plots with all their vegetables growing in them confirmed what I've you know, believed for a long time, which is that food should be produced on a, a local level and in small scale and not you know, the large-scale farming and, that we know and factory farming and everything that happens today. Certainly, I have been introduced to a lot of plants that I have never seen in cultivation. Only really the most showy plants were the ones that were plucked by the plant explorers and taken back to Kew Gardens in in London and um, you know then produced and propagated and brought into cultivation. So it's been wonderful. I've just come back from Mongolia where we went um, into central Mongolia up on the steppes and saw literally, you know, you'd be standing on this flat area, uh, a kilometre square, and there was nothing but a bed of wildflowers. It could have been a hundred different species, all just walking through these meadows of flowers. Absolutely incredible. And in fact, my I live in an extended um, home now since my husband died. I live with my son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren up in the Blue Mountains and we've decided to get rid of the grass in the back of the garden and sow a wildflower meadow. So um, I don't know, I mean it'll, it'll probably take a few years to get it established the way we want it but for me to be able to open the back door and look out on just a sea of flowers and, and not have to get the lawnmower and push it around is a great thing. It's a beautiful idea. Mm. The subtitle to your book is Adventures in Life and Death, and and of course it's natural for us to read and write about life, but was it easy or natural for you to write about death? Well, in fact, 
Um, the death of my husband was one of the main uh, motivating forces in, in deciding to write the book because um, the de- his death, even though he had two years' notice, I mean, he'd been told that he had terminal cancer, we weren't very mentally prepared for it. We never really discussed it. Um, and I go into that a lot in the book. It was because, it was mostly because he wasn't in denial, David wasn't in denial, but he was fighting it. He was determined to fight it. And so t- to discuss death as an inevitability would be almost like admitting defeat. So we sort of lived this t- two years of him having radiation and two lots of chemotherapy, but also wonderful times, holidays together, lots of cooking up lovely meals, lots of going on walks and going to the movies. and. And in a way, pretending that life was perfectly fine and that somehow, you know, I think we convinced ourselves that he was just going to be one of those one in a million people that somehow survives. And and in the end, he died very quickly, just in a few days. He went from being fine to being really, really desperately ill and dying within 10 days. So I think I was fairly traumatised. I think I was in a state of shock for a long time. And it took me a long time to pluck up the courage. But I knew I had to do it because for me, writing, especially writing these sort of very difficult parts of your life, it's like a catharsis. It's a, a form of therapy. And it's different, you know, me talking to you about my husband's death is quite different to actually sitting in front of a computer and, and expressing it. Reading it is another, I've just done an audiobook, so I had to then read the whole, having gone through the catharsis of writing it, of, of living it, and then writing it, I've then also had to read it into a microphone, which is an, like another completely different experience altogether. Does it get easier? Um through those experiences? Time has made it easier. But when I have to read those particular chapters again, it all comes back to me so clearly that I'm back in that place again of um, sorrow. And I think that one of the lessons that I've learned having lost a life partner is that you know, there used to be an expectation, I think, that you know you could grieve for a year and then you had to get over it. Um, I don't think you ever get over it. I think it's something that will make me sad till the day I die. But I have got on with my life. I'm doing lots and lots of different things. I'm moving forward. I've chosen new destinations to take people to. Um, I have, you know, a, a, a sort of part-time relationship with a man that's very comfortable and easy. Um, I've started a new garden um, and I'm involved in my local community, you know, I'm in a book group, I'm in a sewing group, I'm involved in, um, you know, have my garden open to the public because there's a, up in the Blue Mountains we have a thing called the Edible Garden Trail where people come and look at other people's vegetable gardens. So, so I've moved on with my life. I haven't just sort of ground to a halt. But, I mean, even if I were to remarry, and I'm, I'm certainly not considering that, but, it, you know, I would always be sad when I read that, those chapters about David's death. We have something in common, Mary. Neither of us are coffee drinkers. <laughs> I'm always amazed at 
the fact that coffee drinkers need their coffee to start the day. They can't do anything without the coffee. Whereas tea drinkers seem to be a bit more relaxed and enjoy the kind of ritual of preparing and drinking tea. Is that something you enjoy? I absolutely love it. In fact, um, I don't go to coffee shops. So often a friend will say to me, oh, let's meet up and have coffee. And I say, and I say, I always say, well, I don't drink coffee, but I don't like paying $4.50 for a tea bag. And because I like to make tea in a pot that's been warmed. Absolutely. Um, and the cup's been warmed. Isn't that the only way? It's the only way. This morning, before I left home at, you know, five o'clock this morning, I was warming the pot. I was putting the two scoops of lovely um, leaves. In fact, I'm really so boring. When I um, travel, when I go on a book tour or something, I take a teapot and some bushels tea leaves. Strangely enough, I do the same thing. Oh, do you? Except my... my Vice is green tea, so I'm even more particular about the temperature of the water. Oh, it has to be exactly right. I tell you, if you're a tea lover, I can recommend Darjeeling tea. And I've taken, I got into it because I've taken groups up to Darjeeling and then up into Sikkim to look at the rhododendron forests. And the Darjeeling tea is very light and very fragrant, and you don't drink it with milk or certainly not with sugar, you just have it black. And it's the most pure taste of black tea that you you can ever experience it's absolutely wonderful but um yeah tea is very much a part of my morning ritual and certainly for at least 35 years of my 43 year relationship with david um whenever we were together he would bring me a cup of tea in bed every morning and i i do miss that your writing is often very personal and and actually quite revealing and that's particularly evident in several books that you've written does writing bring this out in you or is that the kind of person you are a little bit of both. I am a very candid person and I've never in my life had a problem admitting to anything or um, telling stories against myself or the, you know self-deprecating stories. And when I started writing memoir, I realised that, um, that being honest uh, was much more satisfying to write, but it was also a much better thing for the reader because I think readers are incredibly smart and I think they sense uh, anything that's phony or uh, that's why I did that rewrite of uh, you know the second version of Last Tango in Toulouse because the reader will know if you're not being honest and so to me um, being candid telling a story admitting to things admitting to human frailty um, or even admitting to bad behaviour has never been a huge issue for me. And I think it makes the books uh, a more satisfying read. I think also telling the truth, it's easier to remember. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because if you uh, imagine how easily you would be tripped up, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So, yes, it's uh, much easier to have an authentic voice than to try and pretend to be somebody that you are not. This book is a memoir, although for me, buried in it is a lot of practical advice. Uh, Would you say that there's a message buried in this book somewhere for people or not? I think there are probably several messages. Um, I've always been quite pleased 
with the fact that I'm a very practical person and also I do have, even though I've at times been a bit of a risk taker, I've also got a lot of common sense. And so, you know, one of the things, for example, I'd like um, people to take from this book is that um, you can, um, in, a, in a sense, take charge when a family member is dying. You don't have to just surrender to the medical profession. You don't have to hand over that responsibility. You can be involved in in the most intimate and hands-on way. And so that's what we did with David. He was critically ill in intensive care and to all intents and purposes from the medical profession's point of view, he, he should have died in intensive care. But I knew he wanted to go home, even though he wasn't capable of um, expressing those words. And, and we made it possible, my, my um, four children and their partners and, grand, and the grandchildren, we got that man out of hospital, we got him back up to the farm and he had three magical days surrounded by his family and we cared for him and he died. And uh, the same with his funeral. Um, instead of handing it over to a funeral company, we took charge and did things the way we wanted to do it. So I've got three sons and one, one's a very handy carpenter and um, he decided he wanted to make the casket and he sourced local timbers and even found some timbers on the farm where we were living and milled them and built this beautiful, beautiful casket. He even lined it, went in and, and bought the material and lined it. And then another one of my sons is a landscaper and he had a grave digger's certificate so he was able to dig the grave. And I mean, when David died, we didn't call the undertaker to take him away. He died at eight o'clock at night and we all sat around him for hours and hours. We drank wine, we finished, he died when we were just about to eat dinner and we heated up the food again after he died, some hours after he died. And I slept the night in the bed with him and stayed with him and he didn't actually leave the farm until almost 24 hours after he died. Some people would find that quite extraordinary, that experience, wouldn't they? It just seemed natural to me. And so I think the kid, one of the kids, I'd had three or four glasses of wine and they gave me that and I went out like a light and woke up the next morning and suddenly went, oh, there he is, and it did happen, he's dead. And, and then I wanted him to stay there until my four grandsons from Adelaide could get up. They flew up that morning and so he was just there. And to me, you know, that was, that's owning. That's owning a death and owning a funeral and and that makes it so much more significant and more um, personal and so those sorts of messages I think you know because they, that's part practical but it's also emotional and and it also shows a lot of determination but also I mean a lot of people might never be able to do that because they didn't have as much support. I had fantastic family support to enable me to make those decisions and they helped to make it happen. It's also a wonderful way to end a life, a great life. A wonderful way. I mean I think I said to one of the kids, you know, I said it was as good as it could have been given that it was shit that he died. It was as good as it could have been. Mary, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. You've been listening to Mary Moody talking about her latest book, The Accidental Tour Guide, Adventures in Life and Death. It's published by Simon & Schuster 
and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.